Hello, you are listening to In Traffic with Neil Rubenstein. I am Neil Rubenstein, and today I'll be sitting in traffic talking to photographer and artist Hillary J. Quartz. Hey. Hi. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I am pretty good. That's good. How how have you been? Uh, you know, okay, generally speaking. Been any anything crazy going on in your life? <laughs> anything crazy going on in my life? Well, outside of the fact that my dog barks at everything that goes by. Um, yeah, you know, had some surgeries recently, yeah. been sitting in a recliner for a really long time, but they're coming and taking it from me on Friday, so I'm going to have to figure out another way to be comfortable. Well, like rent a center? Do you, like, you rented a recliner? Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, that huh. was, like, the number one thing that was recommended to me for recovering from surgery was a recliner. Like, hey... You're going to have to sleep on your back. You can't get in and out of your bed easily. Get a recliner. But a recliner doesn't necessarily fit into my lifestyle all of the time. So I wasn't going to buy one. Um, so I rented one. That's, uh, I didn't even think, I wouldn't have even thought of that. So, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I guess this is, we just start right here. Why, uh, how long has this been? How long has this been? Okay, well, my first surgery was at the end of November. I can tell you how I ended up there because it sort of was like a whirlwind. Um, Should we do that? Should we do, like, the long-form story of this? Is that, like, as opposed to me just asking questions as they pop in my head? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Okay, so, I can just, like, start from the beginning, and you can interrupt me and ask me any kind of questions if you want. All right, let's start with this. When did you move to Chicago? I moved to Chicago on October 7th of 2016. Okay. I was living in Brooklyn before that. And you made and you made a decision to have a double mastectomy. Yes. As a precaution. Yes. So when, when but there, you got it there, right? I got it in Chicago. Yeah, because um basically my mother is a breast cancer survivor. She went through um her battle when I was 5 years old. So this was 23 years ago. Okay. And um when I was 20, uh either I or my doctor, I can't remember who, found a lump in one of my breasts. And um, I had a biopsied, and it was benign, but my doctor at the time brought up the idea of the genetic mutation for breast cancer, which I didn't know anything about. So um, she said, yeah, there are, you know, everybody's got these genes, and if there's a mutation in them, you're more likely to have breast cancer. So since your mom is a survivor, have her get tested for the gene, and then let me know what happens. So my mom got tested, and she had it. So then I got tested, and I have it. And, you know, my aunt and my cousins, and it's just, like, very clearly a genetic thing in my family. Um, my grandfather died of cancer. All of his siblings had cancer. Everybody's had cancer. So I find out at 20 that I have this genetic disposition to breast cancer, and is this I, a known is this a known thing this like this gene mutation thing or is this like still a new discovery that like people are trying to spread awareness of? Well, so it's not new and when I mean just recently I was talking to my mother about it and she said that when she had breast cancer she was tested for one of them and she didn't have it so they carried on from there. But I guess in the last 23 years, they've realized that there are more than just one genetic mutation possible. So the two most common are called BRCA1 and BRCA2, 
I'm BRCA2 positive, but then there are a whole bunch of other super rare mutations that I'm just starting to learn about through being in, like, you know, Facebook groups or communities that are full of women who also have these genetic mutations. So the most common that if you've heard of them, you've heard of BRCA1 and BRCA2, but um, there are a handful of others at this point. So I guess they're, they're you know, fairly new or people are just learning about them. All right. So I'm so, uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I guess continue the uh... – That's okay. Um, yeah, so I found out at 20 and then did nothing about it um, for a long time, and I'm going to chalk that up to just being in my 20s or thinking that I'm in, invincible or whatever. But I was supposed to start getting regular mammograms at 25, which – when you don't have any kind of mutation, I believe that your regular mammograms are supposed to start at 30 or 35. Um, but at 20, you know, 25 came and went, and I didn't do anything. Um, I was still seeing my doctor every year. She didn't bring it up. I figured maybe she knew something that I didn't, and I was afraid to ask anyway, so I just ignored it. So fast forward to last fall. Um, at the beginning of September, I decided I was going to move out here, and I had really great health insurance through my job, so I went ahead and made all of my annual appointments um, just to get them out of the way before I lost my health insurance. And um, I went to a new primary care doctor, and she was looking through my chart and said, hey, you seem healthy, but there's this, this mutation for breast cancer. What have you done about that? When was your last mammogram, et cetera? And I was like, I've done <laughs> Nothing. Nothing since I found out about it. Please don't make me feel bad. And she sent me to um, a breast surgeon at Mount Sinai and said, you know, you need to form a relationship with this person. So I hesitated, but I made an appointment with this breast surgeon and went in and talked to her about all of my options. Um, as it was presented to me, I had about an 80% chance of developing breast cancer sometime in my life. And because my mother was diagnosed at 40, that is sort of my um, deadline for everything. So as it was presented to me, I could um, go through this rigorous um, screening process. Every four months, I would have to have either an MRI, an ultrasound, or a mammogram. Um, and any sort of subsequent screening that follows that. So really every time I've had an ultrasound or an MRI, I've had something come up where they say, okay, we need to go in and biopsy that. So um, I can either, you know, go through all of the screening until I either get cancer or decide to remove everything, but everything needs to be removed by 40. And by everything, I mean all of my breast tissue and my uterus and my ovaries and all of that. So it was sort of said to me, like, here, you need to remove your breast eventually. You need to make the decision whether you want kids or not and do that and then remove everything, just have it done by 40. So I don't know about kids yet. I don't know about a family. Putting that on the back burner, breast cancer is looking scarier than, you know, ovarian cancer. So, um I don't know, it, was, it, it felt kind of like, why wait, you know? It was either I'm going to go through the anxiety of making the appointment, going to the appointment, having the follow-up screening, waiting for test results every four months, or just remove my breasts, get it over with, because they have to go anyway. Um, so that was what I chose to do, and I, I made this decision after um, having a year's worth of screening done in two and a half weeks. <laughs> I stood up from having the, the biopsy in an MRI, which is just a horrifying process, and said, you know, like, whatever I can do to never do that again, that's the route I want to take. So I made this decision. Oh, my God, dude, it was awful. Um, so I made this decision, and then I moved. <laughs> I, I, I talked with the doctor, and she said, well, it's not a thing that, you know, needs to be done immediately, but you do have this lump that you should probably get taken out eventually. And, um, you know, as long as you can promise me that you're going to hunt down a doctor when you get to Chicago, you can go. Um, so the first thing that was weird was 
had this lump that they biopsied, and they said it was fine, but she gave me a deadline to have it out. And when I moved to Chicago and found doctors and started talking to them, they couldn't understand why there was a deadline. So there was this discrepancy there. Um, but I, I essentially hmm, – I skipped ahead. I sat down. I had to, like, go through the healthcare marketplace, figure out what hospital I wanted to go to, what insurance I needed, like, all before I could. I even got out here. So I, I buckled down, found some insurance I could afford that would also allow me to go to Northwestern University and took it from there. So I got here. I moved in. And then my life became searching for a doctor trying to figure out my insurance, getting into a doctor's appointment, and taking it from there. So I finally, at the beginning of November, ended up with a breast surgeon at Northwestern. Um, and we sat down and talked about my options again. But is I that, is, sorry, is that community, is that a very small or a very big community? Like, did that doctor know of the other doctor? Were they in communicate? Like, I'm always curious about, like, when I go to the doctor, I know that they take all my information, but they don't communicate with the people that have seen him before me to, like, find out if there's a thing. Like, do they do that or no? Well, so sort of, I guess. You know, like, they didn't know each other, and I didn't put them in touch, but it was just I, I had to have all of my films and records sent from the hospital in New York to the hospital in Chicago, and even that was a hassle. I had I called and initiated this transfer of information three different times, and twice nothing showed up. So, like, I've got, you know, imaging of my breasts out there in the world somewhere that just never came around. Um, but most of, the, most of the doctors that I've dealt with so far have one of those online portal things where you can – sign in and at least see your records. And after I met with my breast surgeon here, I signed into the old portal to just see, like, what had been sent over, what the records were. And there were notes in there that had been added after I moved, notes for the Chicago doctors, like, oh, this thing. Well, which was weird because it was stuff that hadn't been told to me. You know, so – so they had they had said, okay, you have this lump, have it taken out, maybe just go ahead and have the mastectomy done since you're already considering it. And then after the fact, didn't call me, but put in these notes, oh, there's this um, non-mask-like enhancement, and it could be more serious than we thought, and maybe you need to do another MRI, blah, 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 blah. But had I not signed in and looked at my records, I wouldn't have known that. Well, so well, sort of... But your new doctor would have, or, or or no? Well, I, supposedly. So, I, I it was just shady. I didn't. I I was confused by that. And I, as I talk to you about this, shady things keep happening. <laughs> so that was sort of the first thing. Like I went into it thinking, and this is why they were confused by the timeline thing. They're like, well, if it was benign, why would your doctor have given you a timeline? And then I go back in and I see that. There are other more suspicious things going on that they didn't talk to me about, but that would explain why she'd given me sort of a timeline. Is it possible, like, she didn't want to freak you out, but... It's possible. I mean, I suppose so, right? Like, if you were staying with... So, I don't know, just to try and make this woman not seem like a shady lady, like, (laughs) if you would have stayed with her as your doctor she would have gradually steered you in the direction she knew you needed to be in as opposed to being like, oh, hey, I know we just met, but you're going to die from this and we need to do this immediately. You know, maybe that's proven to be an ineffective method in the past. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wasn't staying in New York. I am responsible enough at this point in my life that when someone tells me, like, hey, this thing should be done, like, relatively soon, I'm not going to waste my time. You know, this is my health. So, but but, she, she doesn't know that about you because she said, well, what have you done about your, you know, once you talk about the gene and you're like, oh, well, nothing in six years. So she's like, all right, well, let me, 
you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Right, no, but there was, like, nothing – there was nothing guaranteeing that I was going to do anything when I moved out here, you know. Right. So if okay. she, she didn't call me and tell me, hey, it's, it, it looks a little bit more serious than oh, we originally right. thought. And luckily, I was scared enough at that point that I did hunt down a doctor. But, like, you know, what if I'd moved out here and not gone forward with that? Like, nobody would have known. I don't know. It, right, was, right, right. it was very strange. I can't figure out a reason for that other than she trusted that I was going to take care of myself. So, yeah, so I, I, I find this doctor. I finally get in for an appointment. Um, we decide that there's no point in doing any more imaging because I'm already down to do the prophylactic mastectomy. Um, uh, we just talked about, you know, what choices I have in terms of um, saving my nipples, for instance. This is a, a, a big deal to a lot of people, and she told me that um, – I am a good candidate for it, but – or I guess I was. I was a good candidate for it, but it was up to me. Um, to, save the, to save your nipples. To save the nipples. So the thing with saving your nipples is this. Basically, when you go in for a prophylactic mastectomy, um, the goal is to remove all of the breast tissue possible. And right. There's a and debate. Does that include, like, the – the lymph nodes and stuff like that? Yes. So they'll test, they'll do a lymph node biopsy to make sure that everything is clear, that there's no cancer, that nothing has spread to the lymph nodes and then spread to the rest of your body, et cetera. Um, so they did take bites out of my armpits as well. Um, but with the breast tissue, there's a debate with, your nipples, because if your breast surgeon is skilled enough, they can go in and kind of scrape it all out and remove as much tissue as possible. But by keeping your nipples, you are technically keeping a little bit of tissue. Um, and again, logic sort of prevailed in my mind where you tell me that and it sounds sort of like a half-assed method. Like if I'm going to these drastic measures to remove all of my tissue, I might as well just take it all, right? Like, I don't want to leave right. a little bit and then have a little bit more of a chance that I'll develop breast cancer. And, like, how dumb would I feel if I, if I you know, kept my nipples and then got cancer in my nipples later? Right, um, right, right, of course. I understand that there are doctors that are skilled in this, and there are many women that have saved them with no problem, but it just didn't resonate with me. They're, they're not important enough to me to keep. If I have children, I'm not going to be able to breastfeed anyway. It just wasn't a thing that mattered to me. So I spoke with her. I made that decision. She asked if I had, did I have plans for reconstruction? And did I have a plastic surgeon? And I said, well, I would like to do reconstruction. Um, I don't have a plastic surgeon. Can you recommend anybody? And um you know, I was down at Northwestern at this giant medical facility, so they called over to the plastic surgery department and got me in the same day with um, the the one of four doctors that was available. So I went over and I met with him, and um, he really wanted me to keep my nipples. It was a, a funny sort of juxtaposition to have between you know, talking with this breast surgeon who's like, cool, we'll do whatever you want, and then going over, and now I'm talking with this guy whose job it is to make things aesthetically pleasing, and by taking away my nipples, I was, you know, making his job much harder on him. Um, so we debated that, but, you know, I ultimately said, like, this is my choice, this is what I want to do, please work with me on that. However, we need to make that work, you know, that's that's what I want to do. So... I, uh, he handed me implants. I got to talk about, you know, that whole process, and he figured that um, we would go in for the mastectomy and the breast surgeon would remove all the tissue, and then he would come in. And as far as he knew, I was a good candidate for what's called direct implant. So I would, he would go in and fill my pockets essentially with 
implants and I would wake up the same day with implants and it, you know, feel like everything had been removed, but I'd wake up with breasts. I wouldn't be flat. You know, that's sort of the ideal situation. Um, it didn't happen that way, but that's, that's more of the story. So I have these appointments. Um, and then I work to set a surgery date and basically, you know, I'm waiting, I waited for the hospital to call me and tell me that, um, when both of the doctors were available. So I had these appointments at the beginning of November. They ended up giving me a surgery date of December 20th. So that was fine. You know, here, okay, I've got a couple of months. So this is, gotta, this is moving, like, pretty quick. Pretty quick. But in my mind, it, like, wasn't fast enough, <laughs> you know? Like, what do you mean I have two months to sit around and think about this? But, yeah, I guess in the grand scheme of things, that is fairly fast. Um, I think that there was a battle with surgery dates because, um, everybody, everybody, anybody that's having an elective surgery is trying to get it in before the end of the year because of insurance purposes. Because they think that, uh, we're going to all lose, uh, Medicare and shit, right? Well, that, you know, like you have a deductible and they've probably already met their deductible at that point. Oh, it it. oh, okay. So it's not like a year specific thing it's it's in general everyone always tries to get in yeah yeah they were telling me like holiday time is a really busy time in the operating room which i thought was hilarious but um, (laughs) everybody's getting new tips for christmas um (laughs) Uh, it's christmas for everybody (laughs) yeah yeah i win you win um so the oh okay so the the record I, I'm sorry do you have a do you have a significant other uh, no. during this okay no <laughs> so you're you're so you're alone in Chicago I have a dog <laughs> right. I'm, I'm alone in Chicago yes do you have you. A, do you have a, like a roommate or a family out there I have a roommate I have some okay. friends um my family no my family is in New York I'm from I'm from over there, you know. So it yeah, yeah, yeah no. it felt really weird to sort of like have this come about when I've removed myself from my largest support system. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a I had a roommate. She has since moved back to New York, and I have another roommate. But I had someone around. I have a a pretty solid um, group of friends here. I don't know if you remember, I moved here once before I lived here for a a little bit, a year and change. So I've got people, you know, I'm not totally alone. And that was really why one of the reasons I chose to move back here as opposed to somewhere else is because I know people here. Um, But again, it's it's a, a hard thing to sort of rely on people, no matter how much they love you, for support through something like this. Especially yeah, because, like, if you're not yeah. going through it, you don't really totally understand. Um, but anyway, so the record thing with the hospitals, I'm, you know, like, trying to get my records sent. They weren't sent. They, um, The doctor actually tried to postpone our initial appointment because she hadn't received my records yet. And I battled with the, the scheduling woman on the phone um, just saying, like, listen, I know what I'm going to have done. Like, please just let me still come in because it doesn't matter what my pictures look like. I want I want to go ahead with the surgery. So, yeah, because you're getting screens completely, so it doesn't matter, like, oh, well, it's over here, it's over here. Right, it's- yeah, they're, they're taking it all out. So, um, so I met with the doctor, I met with the plastic surgeon, waited for the surgery date, and about a week later – um, I get a phone call from a number I don't know, so obviously I didn't answer. Um, and I get a voicemail, and it's probably like 6 or 7 p.m., and it's a voicemail from the breast surgeon. Very somber tone, just like, hey, Hillary, Dr. So-and-so, um, I just got your imaging from New York, and I went over it with our radiologist, and um, here's my cell phone number. Please call me back as soon as you get this. 
we need to talk. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, this sounds great. So I call her, and she said, you have cancer. And I said, are you sure? And she was as sure as she could be without performing more tests herself. And this is a doctor that I've researched. She's been in the business for 40 years. I trusted her. She said, really, you know, the only if that I see in this scenario is if it's invasive or not. So the ideal would be non-invasive, meaning that it's, you know, just in the breast and hasn't spread anywhere, um, invasive being it's gone into the, into the lymph nodes and it's gone other places. So but, we get this call. Go ahead. But you're already you're already getting the surgery. Already getting the surgery. Already made the decision to have the surgery. So basically all this phone call did was give me a ton of anxiety, tell me I've been walking around with cancer, make me sort of question everything like, oh, my God, what if I didn't decide to move? I'd just be walking around. You know, who knows when I would have gone to the doctor and taken care of this. Um, and she said, we need to move your surgery up. I said, okay. Oh, okay. okay, that that's good. You know, so I sit down. I call my friend that I was just with. I call my parents. I call my brother. I sort of call anybody that, like, needs to know. And then I sit and cry. Um and then it becomes my job, essentially, to get my surgery date moved up. So, so you're, we're, we're talking like this is worth it. this is Thanksgiving right now. This is no, this is like a week and a half into November, so not yet Thanksgiving. Oh, oh okay, okay. So, so I'm, this is just like right when you move to Chicago. Yeah, like a month after, because I got here at the beginning of October. I had my first appointment at the beginning of November, and then about a week later is when she called and told me this. Okay. All right, all right, all right. So I'm calling the hospital every day, every day, getting sort of the same story. I say, you know, the the woman who I talked to for scheduling hasn't even been filled in on this aspect of, you know, like my charts, but, of course, I'm one of however many people they're dealing with, so – I had to make myself known, I guess, you know, and I said, well, the doctor called me and told me that I have cancer and that I need to move my surgery up, so I don't understand why everybody's treating this like it's not a big deal because that feels like a big deal to me. Um, I ended up going down to the hospital one day because keep in mind, like, all I'm doing is sewing at this point. I started a project. I wasn't searching for a job because, you know, the last thing I want to do is find a job. And then three weeks later, be like, okay, I got to go have surgery now. I'm out for a couple of months at least. Right. Right. Um, so I went down to the hospital and met with uh, – just showed up, said I need to talk to this person who does the scheduling. And she took me into one of the little consultation rooms, and I cried my eyes out to her and said, can you understand how this doesn't make sense to me? Um, because the best they could give me was a date that was – four days before my previous date. I was like, why does well, this make sense? Yeah, you know, so like going back and forth with the hospital and they finally call back and they're like, okay, December 16th. I was like, but why did we have that phone call? What is this about? Why are you doing this to me? I know it's not you. I know it's not me. I know, you know, like there's so many cooks in the kitchen and when you're all alone or essentially all alone and nobody is, here to tell you, like, things are going to be okay. It was terrifying. So I, I just had to show up and show her that I was a human and a young one at that. And, like, hey, you're freaking me out. I need to know when my family can come. This doesn't make sense to me. Can, you know, can you have the doctor call me or what can we do? So then the doctor calls me and tells me, essentially, like, what happened was she called me and told me that I have cancer and then proceeded to downplay it until my surgery. Like, well, <laughs> which, again, you know, like, how, what what is there to believe? You called me and told me this really sort of life-changing thing, and now you're going to act like, well, maybe we're not so sure. And what sucks is, like, 
yes, technically, maybe I should have said, well, you know, are you 100% sure? Can we even be 100% sure without new imaging done? We decided to forego any sort of testing because we were just going to, like, you know, they were going to take the tissue off right, and right, right. It after the fact. Um, but I, I don't know these things. Nobody's ever walked me through this before. This is not an experience I've had before. So you call and tell me that I have this thing. I'm going to believe it. But then it just becomes more confusing when now they're like, well, it's not really a big deal. It's okay. You know, your surgery is still within a month or so. But I think what happened was I was so annoying that they gave me a new date. <laughs> or you were so annoying, they were like, no, 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 it's not cancer. Don't, it's not. We were wrong. <laughs> right. Either way, they're like, oh, shit, we screwed up your quality of life. Now let's try to backpedal and make you feel better. But at that point, there's nothing you can tell me that's going to make me right. feel better other than like, yeah, come in tomorrow and we'll just take care of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they moved my surgery up to November 28th. So, like, so is that slightly, why you couldn't? Is that why you couldn't do the direct implants then? No. No. So oh. everything was supposed to stay the same. They they worked it out so that both doctors could be there on that day. They just wanted to get me taken care of and get me out of their face. Um, so my mom booked a flight. She came out the day before surgery. Um, I had a big, big burger meal at midnight the night before, or I had to stop eating at midnight. So I, I went down to Ocheval, which is um, downtown Chicago, with some friends and ate, you know, the best burger in the city, um, gorged myself, and then I had surgery the next day. So part of what my plastic surgeon told me was um, I think I'm pretty sure I can do direct implant, but there is a small chance that you know, you'll wake up with what's called expanders, and that'll just be a different process. So I go in for surgery, I wake up, I have expanders. And expanders are, they're tissue expanders. So they're these plastic uh, disc things that as they expand, they're shaped like a stack of pancakes. So not breast-shaped, but enough that it can sit in the pocket and slowly stretch out your tissue. So basically what they do is periodically, and it depends on the doctor, but mine does it each week. I go into the doctor's office. They find the port in each breast with a magnet and stick a needle in it and inject saline into each pocket. So, I've been each week now going in and having these expanders filled, and they're getting increasingly harder and lumpier and, like, weirder looking, and they sit up sort of high, and it's kind of like if Jessica Rabbit had, you know, a bag full of boulders on her chest instead of breasts. Um, so I wake up with expanders, and he said it was because I didn't keep my nipples so there wasn't enough Skin. I didn't have an, you know, you need to like stretch out in the pocket some more in order to fit the the proper size implant. And we had, right. there wasn't even really much of a conversation when I met him the first time. I think I just had the attitude that he read where like, I'm not trying to make them look any different. You know, like I like the size of my breasts. I had really nice natural breasts and it was a bummer to let go of them. So I wanted to, you know, keep what's proportionate to my frame. Let's not get crazy. No, I don't want to go bigger. Just, you know, like, let's make this as seamless as possible. So because I lost that amount of tissue, we needed to expand. So I come home with expanders, and that's fine, and that sort of, you know, extends the recovery time a little bit, but it wasn't really a big deal. Um, they send you home with drains, and I had two on each side. There are these long pieces of plastic tubing that go into – they're in the breast pocket to drain out the fluid. And the, uh, they came out, like, my sides underneath my armpits and are attached to these little grenade-shaped bulbs that collect the fluid. So you have the drains until the output is below 
30 cc's in 24 hours, and then they take them out. And everybody has them at least, you know, around two weeks. I've heard horror stories where women have them for six weeks, um, but mine were working properly, and the fluid was draining properly and sort of looking like I was going to have them out in two weeks. Um, A few days after my surgery, um, we noticed, we being my mother and I, because she was here to help take care of me, um, one of the breasts, my left one, was not looking so hot. It was starting to get red. It looked a little bit more swollen than the other one. Um, And it started very early on. I was really only out like two or three days. So thanks to technology, we were able to take a picture each day and send it to uh, my doctor, and they could say, you know, okay, keep an eye on it. Okay, how does it feel? Is it, you know, hot to the touch, whatever. Um, by I had my surgery on a Monday. By the following Sunday, I woke up and just, like, didn't even really feel very well, and we just knew that, you know, something wasn't right. So this was maybe day three of sending pictures, and the, the nurse called and said, okay, you got to come in. So I go in to the hospital, get admitted again, um, and I'm told that I have what looks like an infection, um, and they're going to have to take me into surgery the next day. And I'm getting, like... And this is from the extenders. This is from the... Well, so at this point, they don't know. You know, they're just like, well, that looks infected. And I guess that there are a number of ways that you can get an infection. Obviously, whenever you have a major surgery that is a risk. Um, Again, you know, like this had been said to me, but I didn't really, I guess I didn't understand or I didn't really listen or I wasn't thinking about it. You know, you don't go into something expecting a bad thing to happen. Um, Well, because they say you have, they say like, this is going to keep you from getting cancer. You might get an infection. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. That's not cancer. So carry on. Yeah. Um, So, they, uh, man, I was, I got sick though. I, I didn't feel well that night. They made me stop eating at midnight because they were probably going to take me into, um, surgery the next day. They've got me back on IV antibiotics. Um, and the next morning I woke up and I was ill. So, um, they said, all right, we're going to take you into surgery. We're going to check it out. There is a chance, you know, we're, we're hopefully just going to open you up and flush it out and make sure everything's fine and then close you back up. There is a chance that you'll wake up without that expander. So you'll have one, and then the other side will be completely flat. And this is said to me, and I'm thinking, well, I grew up with a mom that was lopsided. That's okay. I can deal with that, too. You know, so my mom, when I was five, she had breast cancer. She had her mastectomy, and then she lived with one regular breast and one altered breast for, you know, like a decade. So I was used to, you know, like abnormal body shapes and that sort of thing. Um, So sure enough, I go in for the surgery and I wake up, and the first thing I noticed was I felt like a new person. It was incredible. I was definitely very sick from this infection, didn't even really realize that that was what the problem was, Um, but they did take the expander. So... I don't know if you are have seen – it's sort of like coming into the news a little bit. I know the New York Times did a, a piece on it, but women who have mastectomies and then choose to stay flat, um, yeah. it's not it, – you know, it doesn't look like – there's no tissue. So often it's sort of concave or, you know, you can see a lot of ribs. The thing for me was that – I could look down and see my heart beating. It looked like my heart was just, like, right there underneath the skin, and it was so weird to me because I don't remember the last time I've been able to see that. So um, this was December 5th, and I had to heal with one expander and one side flat for, like, two months. Um, So that was sort of a a blow um, and extended – the recovery process even more. And keep in mind, like, at this point, I can't raise my arms above my head. I can't lift anything. They're telling me, you know, 
I, I was helpless. <laughs> I couldn't shower myself. Like, my mom got in the shower with me, washed my hair for me, washed my back. You know, if I, I really don't know how anyone does anything like this on their own. Um, it was I, – I felt really helpless. So um, this is a week after my first surgery. So now I've had two major surgeries in a week. And um, my mother's flight was supposed to leave the next day. My parents aren't together, but my dad was coming in to take over. So she ended up staying to overlap a little bit to make sure that he got here. She got me home from the hospital, and then she left and he took over. And he was only supposed to be here for a week, but I was still so pathetic by the end of the first week that he was here that he stayed another week. Um <laughs> so pathetic. I was so <laughs> pathetic. Not not a word anyone would use to describe you at that point. Like, <laughs> go really, ahead. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel pathetic now. So I, I okay. was actually pathetic then. Um, you know, like, yeah. well, the reason I brought up the drains is because the drains are a thing that, like, really – they hinder you. You know, you got these, like, bags full of gross fluid hanging off of you. It's even harder to move around with them. They're very uncomfortable. There was, like, no chance of driving, though I was also on painkillers, so wasn't supposed to be anyway. Um, so he stayed until I got my drains out and could dress myself and bathe myself. That was, like, my thing. Like, I just need to be able to take a shower and wash my hair on my own. So they send you home with, like, this big packet full of all the information, all your discharge papers and whatever, and at the very end, like, a couple of sheets, um, like, stretches that you're supposed to do and things to, like, help your range of motion. Um, Luckily, my plastic surgeon gave me a script for physical therapy, and I don't know how people get through it without that because, you know, that's been super helpful for me. I can now put my arms above my head, all of that. so let's see what else. Uh, I spent Christmas by myself. That got really dark. It was a really rough time. Um, all all the while, like feeling really weird about my body because I've got one sort of breast and one nothing. Um, sort of the saving grace for me was I have this friend who is also a photographer who was in Chicago for a while. So he. Um, he took photographs of me before my first surgery and then at that point where my body looked completely different. Um, and that was super empowering. <laughs> it, it really turned my uh, mood around a lot and helped me to realize that, you know, everybody's different, every body is different. Um, this was just a period of time that I had to look this way and he, it was beautiful. You know, I had a friend tell me that I looked like a sculpture, which really helped because, you know, what, what do you really say to somebody in that position? You know, I, all I wanted was to show my friends and have somebody like normalize it a little bit and was met with a lot of like, Oh, I don't know if I want to see that. You know, I had people straight up tell me that they didn't, they weren't interested been looking at that. And here I'm like, but I'm not a weirdo. I'm not a freak. Like, help me feel like less of a freak. You're talking about, like, post-surgery? Yeah. Oh, it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, no, it's weird know. that people would – no, it's people that it, – I'm sorry. It's weird that people would not – would be weird about it. Like, why wouldn't you want to support your friend? Like, you just – like, even if you were weirded out by it, just grin and bear it for the sake of your friend. Well, maybe you're a better friend. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's all pretty cool. I feel like a a science experiment at this point, but. Well, yeah, I mean, my my actual feeling is, like, yeah, I want to see it. Like, I'm very curious. That's why I want to talk about it. I want to learn about it. I want to see it. But if I were one of those people that were queasy about it, I would still be like, oh, yeah, Hillary, whatever you, like, whatever makes you feel more comfortable, like. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, like, I, I don't know. Uh, Instead of like, hey, can't you find somebody else to talk to about this? <laughs> yeah, it seems so, uh, uh it's garbagey. I don't know. You learn a lot about a lot of people when you go through something like this. It's, it's, it's sure. been a whole learning experience. 
Um, so I was going to the doctor every week, having him look at my scars and checking in on me, and I started physical therapy and then realized, um, well, I guess I'd realized it before. I had to pick a new health insurance <laughs> because the health insurance that I had through the marketplace was no longer going to be available to me come the first of the year. At the same time, I know. <laughs> so here I'm like lopsided in the middle of everything, like, okay, well, I have to keep going on this, but I have to figure out a way to make that possible. So it ended up actually being easier to pick the plan because Northwestern decided to stop accepting any insurance through the marketplace besides this one very specific plan. So it's Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, um, each tier of this one plan, and that was it. So that decision was made for me. So I went in and I signed up for this. Turns out it's an HMO. I don't know if you're familiar with HMOs, but they require referrals for everything from your primary care doctor. Oh, Jesus Christ. So I get I get a new surgery date, and it's scheduled for January 24th. So I tell my parents. They book their flights. I start planning for, you know, like what what needs to be done. Oh, right, I have this new insurance. Oh, is this new insurance going to let me go to physical therapy? No, probably not. Okay. So, oh, wait, I need a referral for everything? Okay, what do I do? The way that it works, and it's I think it's new to everybody this year, at least within this plan and the Northwestern group, that it turned out <laughs> I had to have a friend drive me 35 miles out into the suburbs of Chicago to the only primary care office that was available to me because they didn't have any through Northwestern in the city to get a referral to go to my surgery that's already scheduled. So I had to get a referral from a, a doctor I'd never met to continue seeing my plastic surgeon. Um, and they didn't even look at, like, what was going on with me. I was prepared to be like, yeah, here's what's going on. You want to see? And I just sat there fully clothed, had my temperature taken, told them what referrals I needed, and then that was that. Um, He's going to get paid, too. Well, so we were in the suburbs, so we went to Chili's, which made the whole trip worth it. Yes, there you go. Um, <laughs> you know, because that's what you do when, you, you're, when you're out near Chili's. You go to a Chili's. Did you FaceTime Dubin while you were eating? No, I should have, though. That's like his favorite thing to do is FaceTime other people while at different Chili's. He's just, you know, Dubin's never FaceTimed me from a Chili's. Uh, now, once once he hears this, he will. <laughs> hey, Mike Dubin, next time you're at Chili's, hit me up. Make sure make sure lives there too. He's gonna be very uh, he's gonna be very happy that this exists. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, all right. So, wh where are you at right now? You're one extenders and one uh, uh, flat. No, no. Okay, so got the referrals, came back. My last surgery was on the 24th of January. So, and then, okay, so you're when you go to the doctor, you're one and one. Yes. Okay, got it. Yeah. Right. Yep. So um, I go in for surgery, or well, I met with the doctor before. Before the surgery, and the new plan is this thing, a procedure that's called the latissimus dorsi flap. And your lap, you know, your giant muscles that spread down the entirety of your back and sort of wrap around the side, those are your lap. Um, the plan was to, in order to make a more naturally shaped breast and to give my breast pocket more skin for him to work with. He was doing this procedure where he made two tiny little holes in my sides to work through, made two six inch incisions on my back directly beneath my shoulder blades 
to take both skin and pieces of my lat muscles from either side to move up front. So he didn't just, like, take the skin and the muscle off and, you know, like, walk around to the front and put it on. He took – he didn't even disconnect blood vessels. This is, this is where it gets, like, really super sciencey and fun for me. Through those two tiny little holes on my side, just, like, between my shoulder blades and my armpits, he moved everything like a pendulum from the back to the front to use in my breasts. So the pieces of the back muscles are inside of my breasts acting as like an extra layer um, and sort of as a support for the expanders. And then the skin is used he really sort of just, like, replaced where my nipples were. It's a bigger piece of skin, but the incisions went from being two um, lines across my breasts to now circles. So I have two pieces, two circle pieces of skin from my back in the middle of my breasts. So from far away, it would look like someone just, like, cut out my nipples. <laughs> um, so basically... Now I have I, – I look. my back looks like someone cut off my angel wings, and um, my muscles are incredibly tight, but everything up front looks pretty good. So I get the expander back. He he makes these changes. And, and through, like, through physical exercise and stuff, that muscle will repair itself in the back? God, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to. Um but imagine, you know, like you work out a ton and your muscles are tight and you're physically fit and then someone goes in with a scalpel and, like, cuts into it. It just, like, seizes up. So that's what I've got going on right now. I'm in physical therapy. Hopefully it'll be better. But it's sort of rearranged, you know, how I think about the whole thing because I can't even feel mostly what's happening up front anymore. Um a lot of it is numb, and there's just sort of, like, pressure and tightness, and I've really just focused on my back at this point. Um, but now I'm not lopsided anymore. I've got the expanders. I've had a few fills, which is where I go in and they, they add more to it. Um, and I've got a couple left. So basically what they do is, they fill each week until you reach your desired size, and then they fill one more week. So they overfill because I guess the way that it works with the expanders, they when they switch from expanders to implants, the size decreases a little bit or it ends up looking a little bit smaller. Um, so each week that I go in, I look down and I'm like, is that – Am I there yet? And I'm not there yet, but I should get there this week. And then next week will be the last fill. And then I sit and wait four to six weeks, and then I get implants. And they'll just go back in through the original incisions to take out the expanders and put the implants in. And so at that point, other than the nipples, like if you're wearing a shirt, no one who has seen you Last time I saw you was August. Uh, the next time I see you is next August. I won't see a difference. Not really. I mean, uh, they're going to be perkier than they were forever. <laughs> but other than that, no. I mean, right now, like, I got a T-shirt on, and it doesn't really look any different than anybody else. You know, everybody's got different breasts, so they, like, are either perky or they sag or one's bigger than the other or whatever. So technically speaking, I suppose I'll have um, sort of ideal breasts because I've got a doctor crafting them for me. You know, they're going to be the same size and they're going to sit exactly where we want them to. And one won't be like too far over to the side or, you know. Have you, have you had follow-ups with, uh, your doctor about your, uh, like, the breast issue, like, that was a success, like, that part of it? That, no, well, so I was supposed to go see her a week after the first surgery, but I ended up going back into surgery. Um, so she just happened to be on the 
surgery floor as I was being rolled down, like waiting for that infection to get taken care of. So she came over and she said, you know, what are you doing here? And I explained it to her and that was that. So when I woke up from the surgery, I said, hey, can someone call and find out my results? Because they had taken the tissue off and they were supposed to test it and I was going to find out that day if it was invasive or not or whatever. Um, so she didn't even tell me. I had the on-call breast surgeon look at my chart because the nurses couldn't tell me. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, it's clear. You're, you're all clear. It was negative. Nothing. You didn't have anything. So that was how I found out that I didn't actually have cancer. Oh, just like Jesus. laying in the hospital bed from a doctor that I'd never talked to before just on the phone and told me. Um, which was great, you know, so, but obviously I had like really mixed feelings about it because here I had thought that it was this one thing and it turned out to not be, um, that really terrifying thing at all. But ultimately like can't be mad at it because I don't have cancer. I didn't have cancer. I'm not going to get cancer now. And then I didn't have to have any sort of like chemo or radiation. And you still need to get your uterus and some Yeah. Way. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Wow. But so with with the mutation, um, my chances of developing ovarian and uterine cancer are higher but or higher than the average woman but still not like 80%, you know, that was why I went the breast removal route first. I was like, this is posing the biggest risk to me right now, going to get this taken care of. I just know what my timeline is and, you know, when I need to have the rest of this out by. And I'll have to have heightened screening, um, but I just haven't started that yet. Right, like one one thing at a time, kind of right now, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. And you, uh, I mean, all this kind of your friends back home and stuff. Uh, I'd say, I, I, what are we like? We're like secondary, right? Like this year on that, we're on each other's outskirts of social circles. Um, yeah. We find out about this stuff because you started posting these. Um, these like benefit uh, these uh, boobs patches. Yeah. So what's uh, what's the story with those things? Uh, so the story with those things is, I found out about these sewing machines last year. Call they're uh, it's a, an industrial chain stitching machine, um, and got really interested in this whole chain stitching thing and the culture behind it and got myself one and that was back in I guess August I got one I got this guy in West New York he had this uh shop and he sold it to me so I start I had just started playing around with it and then made a decision to move and came out here so learning how to use the machine it's totally manual um and I started stitching boobs <laughs> and then I decided you know here the, <laughs> like sketching boobs all day just on my machine like what am I going to do with this um and the whole idea was that I needed I wanted to find a way you know a creative outlet because I'm an artist and that's what we do we process our feelings through making things um and I realized that I could make a thing that was cute and fun, and they're all one of a kind, um, to not only help me through this whole process and, you know, like, provide an income, but also to help others. I wanted to raise awareness for the fact that, like, hey, if your mom had breast cancer, chances are you're more likely to get it, and there are ways to figure this out. And, you know, like, I didn't know about the genetic mutation until somebody told me and man, you, you'd be surprised how many people I've talked to about it who had no idea that it was a thing. Um, so basically I started making these iron on patches um, and 
part of the proceeds are going to a group that's called FORCE, which stands for Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. And it's the only organization out there that um, works specifically with women and families who are affected by hereditary breast and ovarian cancers. Um, so, you know, if you go to their website, which is facingourrisk.org, there's just a whole ton of information and a bunch of resources about, about the genetic mutations, how to get the screening done, how to get the screening done for free if you don't have, you know, the ability to pay for it. Because part of the problem is it's a really expensive screening process to go through. The test is like $3,000 or something. But the lab that has the monopoly on it will make exceptions, like if your mother had cancer or if, you know, you know that some immediate family member was also affected, they'll sort of, like, waive the process for you. Um, so I'm donating to them because I've gotten a lot of information from them. Um, I think it's important to raise awareness for this specifically because I think that there are plenty of people around whose family members have gone through cancer and they don't, you know, I guess when your family member goes through cancer, you're told like, yeah, you're probably more likely, but you don't really know. But if you get this test done and you find out that you have the genetic mutation, all of a sudden you have all of these options, you know, and, and the whole part of being empowered and, you know, facing the risk empowered is knowing exactly what you're facing, being given the options for screening or the mastectomy or whatever, and then making that choice for yourself. You know, like right, right, right. up until these options were presented to me, all I knew was like, well, we know exactly where the mutation is so they can watch me more specifically instead of like, well, your mom had cancer, so you're likely going to get it. You know, it just gives you, gives you more information, and I think that it's really important for people to know that they can, they can know more. You know, there are, there are ways to make sure to find out exactly what your risk is, you know, and, and make decisions moving forward based on that other than like living in this sort of cloudy fear of like, well, I'll probably get cancer because my mom had it. Does that, does it affect men the same way? Men can get breast cancer. Yes. So, um, it does affect men the same way. I know that having the genetic mutation as a male raises your risk of prostate cancer. Ugh. And obviously, as, as a male, you pass on your genetics to any offspring that you may have. So even if uh, a male is a carrier of the mutation and doesn't develop cancer himself, he can pass on the mutation to his children. So it's like, I, I mean, I sort of feel like it's something that you would want to know anyway, whether or not you're going to yeah. do something about it, because you want to know if you're passing this on to your children, because then you want your children to be able to make decisions for themselves accordingly as well. Right, right. But, you know, not everyone wants to know <laughs> also. <laughs> Finding yeah, out too. yeah, it's scary, scary shit, you know, like, mm -hmm. that's scary shit, man. It's scary shit. I had, I had an argument with my brother about it. Um, he's supposed to be having the testing done soon, but um, it came down to, like, me calling him and telling him after that doctor called and said I had cancer. I was like, now will you get tested, please? <laughs> I know you want kids, it's like figure this out. But I understand, you know, not everybody operates the same and being told that you have this thing that's now going to cause you to like need to go to the doctor more often and maybe pay out of pocket if you don't have insurance. And, uh, you know, it's just some people just choose not to know. I'd rather not know that I have this risk because I want to live my life and not have to worry about it all the time or you know, if you're like me, I'd rather know so I can take charge because I have anxiety issues. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, 
I mean, I guess I'd rather not know because I, I haven't bothered to, like, get any kind of testing at all, you know? Right. Yep. I, just, I just go about my day, and I'm like, all right, we'll work this one. Yeah. We're all going to die somehow, right? Someday all of this will be underwater. Yeah. Probably someday sooner rather than later. Dude, it's like <laughs> 65 degrees out right now. Yeah, it's warm as hell right now. Um, yeah. Our planet's dying. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, Hillary. Uh, yes. I really appreciate you uh, talking about this, being like so open. I think uh, uh, I think it helps other people to hear your story. Because um, if they you know, if they go through something similar, then it's like someone's, you know, with them. Or if, uh, you know, or if they avoid it altogether, they know, like, but they're in a bad situation, they know that, it, uh, you know, the other people out there are uh, yeah. experiencing it, too. Yeah, thank you very there, much. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah. There are really so many people that deal with this sort of thing, and it's it's tough to hear that people do feel alone. You know, I've I've found support groups, um, some of which I, I find better than others. I have a hard time, I think, accepting any sort of, like, comfort in strangers. But, you know, just knowing that there are people around, many people around that are dealing with this sort of thing, um, some people choose to be more private about it. But I am not one of those people. You know, I'm trying to talk to really anybody that I can because I think it's so important and, you know, there are so many options. You just have to find out what they are. Yeah. Yeah. Get off, uh, everybody get off their ass and get checked out. Right. And, like, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the moral of the story is like, go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. You're not invincible. You're probably okay, but maybe you're not, and and maybe that's something that you want to know. You know, like I I got stuff I want to do in my life, and getting cancer is not one of those things. I don't yeah. I don't want that to <laughs> prevent me from you know doing the traveling that I want to do or like seeing new stuff and experiencing all these great things that I have ahead of me somewhere. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Um, yeah, glad uh, glad stuff seems to be working out finally. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And, uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for doing this, and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Of course. Yeah, yeah, can't wait to talk to you again. Jerk, Neil.